I think one of the main problems that we have is um, we need to um, be a little bit more realistic um, or more have more of a realist approach to tradition. One of the issues that we have is we uh, tend to over-romanticize a lot of uh, our history and a lot of our um, past. And uh, sometimes that tends to drive us to present a, a view of religion that could sometimes be unrealistic or untenable for people. Um, this pristine look, which, you know, let's face it, we did have an amazing run for a long time as an ummah, uh, but there are reasons why we fell and there are reasons why we're behind. Now, um, to outline those reasons and be uh, a bit more honest with ourselves is the first step. Not everything that we get uh, criticized for is unfounded. Some of the things are, have merit, and we need to have, um, let's say, a bit of a self-reflection and honesty with ourselves to consider what is valid, what is not valid, um, so that we can improve. Uh, when we always approach uh, the world with a defensive mechanism, that we're always criticizing and we're always about trying to preserve whatever we have, um, we can uh, fall for blind spots, and if we don't recognize these blind spots by being self-reflective and just accepting valid criticisms, what ends up happening is a lot of the youth, when they go online, and, and that's really the main source of information now, uh, and they come across things that some of our teachers may not address head-on or not have um, uh, maybe more convincing answers for, um, they can quickly fall, uh, fall, uh, fall off the wayside and just go astray. So we have to have a, a different approach to how we teach the tradition. The, the ways of old that have been going on for a long time no longer work. We also need to approach the tradition with a multidisciplinary lens. So you don't have um, this. We, we, we have the relic of colonialism where we basically have separated religion from uh, other fields of study. Yeah. Um, and that is basically the way that the colonialists have uh, took us down remove things from the masjid. So the masjid used to be a place where you would go and study medicine, would go study astronomy, study your physics, study your engineering, study everything. And at the same time, study your Quran and study your traditional sciences. And everything was in one place. We have secularized our religion and our material sciences, if you want to use that term. Mm -hmm. um, and in that way, we have a lot of our youth who are being driven by the parents that you, you know, the highest calling for you is to become a doctor or an engineer. But at the same time, if you go pursue these things, you're basically divorcing the kid from any connection with the tradition beyond maybe go to Jum'a and uh, maybe attend uh, Taraweeh in Ramadan and fast month of Ramadan and basically turn the religion into a ritualistic religion. At some point in time, this kid is going to grow up. They're going to read enough things, and the education that they get from the university is a Western-based education, which is really rooted in post-enlightenment thinking which is really materialist and atheistic in its, in its uh, philosophical foundations. And all of these things are going to be taken up by the youth. And at some point, they're going to have questions that they have these conflicts, these intellectual conflicts. And in many cases now, it's increasing. Um, they make a choice, and the choice, unfortunately, is, you know what, this religion is not really serving much. It's more of an inconvenience now with all of these rituals that have no meaning to me in my life. So we have to basically have a, an overhaul of, a, of the way that we uh, deliver this tradition to the youth. 
Yeah. Now uh, we're speaking to Mohammed Jilan, uh, a Canadian Muslim originally born in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, to parents from Sudanese and Yemeni background. He attended high school after immigrating to Canada in Vancouver, British Columbia. He attended the University of Victoria on Vancouver Islands. He um, obtained his uh, BSc right with a major in microbiology honors. Uh, then you went on to obviously getting your PhD in neuroscience at the University of Victoria. Now, coupled with that, in 2007, Muhammad uh, began his full-time studies in the Islamic tradition after having made connections with several Muslim scholars. He had been he has been consistently traveling over the past years to spend intensive, extended periods studying various aspects of the Islamic sciences relating to theology and creed, jurisprudence, hadith, foundational principles, usul fiqh, Arabic poetry, spiritual purification and the Quranic sciences. Now, Muhammad, many times, um, because of the age that we live in, few people understand both Islam, uh, we talk about the universality of Islam, but how is Islam universal? That's the one question. And then few people also understand Islam and the modern world in how it affects us to be able to provide the necessary Islamic responses to the problems that we have. Now, coming from your background in, 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 in studying in at a, you know, at a secular university, have your PhD in neuroscience, and then also you know, pursuing, um, trying to bridge that gap between the two um, you know, paths that have been divided, unfortunately, in our day and age. Um, how have you managed to bridge the gap in order to provide those Islamic responses to the challenges you've experienced and that you've seen? The bridging of the gap is really, uh, uh, there was never a gap to begin with. Um, uh -huh. If you look at uh, our history and how how our previous scholars, people wonder like, well, you know, how did uh, did Muslims have the scientific method, you know, and, and how did they get the golden age going and such. If you look at the history or the historical development of how we excelled in, excelled in sciences, the primary reason for it was to fulfill religious duties. So if you look at Al-Khawarimi, for example, and his book on algebra, if you read the introduction of his text on math, I mean, people might have problems with algebra. You know, Muslims have given us zero and, yeah. and mathematics and such. Um, Al-Khawarizmi, in his introduction, he actually outlines the reason for him developing this, this discipline was, by, uh, was from a command from uh, the Khalifa at the time, who said that we have a problem with inheritance laws. Our inher inheritance laws are quite complex, and they require sophisticated mathematics. And you are supposed to be, you're, you know, you're propped up as the math genius of Khawarizmi. So I need you to develop a discipline so that you can help us calculate the inheritance. And that was the, the, that was the start of algebra. That's why we excelled in algebra. If you look at astronomy, the primary reason Muslims started doing astronomy and, and, and excelled at it was due to fulfilling religious obligations. As the city-state, the Muslim state, became bigger and more complex, and it had all of these different institutions, now a new need arose, which is we need to figure out ahead of time when Ramadan comes, we need to know when the prayer times are, and we can't rely on, you know, more um, uh, uh, simple methods that, you know, an average person can do. We need something more, comp more uh, sophisticated so that we can plan our calendars ahead of time. And that was the start of Muslims being engaged in a serious way with the discipline of astronomy. Now, you can go on and on and on and on with geography, geology, all of these things, and you'll find the beginnings of all of these fields for Muslims was for the sake of we need to fulfill religious duties, and then the interest kept going, and they started to developing more and more. So there was never really a gap. The two things were connected with each other. Now, the worldview itself 
the, the metaphysical worldview, the reason you speak of a gap today and people think of the religion and science as separate things, there is a presumption behind that. And the presumption is that you can investigate the world based on materialist notions, based on materialist metaphysics. Well, if you're going to approach it like that, you will always have a gap. You will always have this empty space that you don't really know how to connect it to. Nothing really makes sense. Now, the problem with the modern scientific method is reductive in its nature. It does not accept a holistic view. It, it atomatizes everything and looks at, uh, at uh, the parts, expecting the parts to be equal to the whole, which is not the case, and we know that from many studies. So for me, when I approach all of this stuff, I don't have uh, an atheistic metaphysics to start off with. I come to it as a Muslim studying these things. Now, the tools of investigation themselves where you do an empirical study, you devise a hypothesis, you test it out, you look at it, you make sure that it works. If it doesn't work, you change your approach. That's a different thing, and you, anybody can engage in that without having to be a Muslim or a non-Muslim. The question becomes about building. After you find out information about the material world, and your studies give you some results, how do you put all of that together in a way that gives you a, a, a worldview that's beyond science itself? It's just a general worldview. I never have a problem with that because my metaphysics to start off with are not materialistic in their, in their essence. So I can come up with studies, I can find results, I can publish papers, I can do all of these things, and not have any problems with anybody. But for me, my worldview after all of that, once I leave the lab, I don't have the gap because I didn't start off with a problematic uh, beginning. Yeah. Uh, just uh, building on that with regards to, I mean, many of the listeners are parents, obviously, you know, worried that their children might fall into that gap of scientism as a, as an epistemology, as a metaphysics without understanding the holistic, uh, you know, um, epistemology that is, Islam includes. Um, what advice do you have to parents, like putting them into these schools that are based on a scientism uh, methodology of research? The first thing that I would say, which um, I've actually seen first-hand experience of, because I've taught, the, uh, I've seen this with my students, teach them uh, basic foundational text in theology. And when I say theology, aqidah, I don't mean like al-aqidah al-tahawiyah, where you just explain what we as Muslims believe or don't believe. Yeah. This is just a didactic stuff. I'm talking about uh, more in the mm -hmm. sense of the logic of the belief. Like a Sanusi, for example, or Nasafiya, yeah, the Nasafiya, or you can go with... Uh, even more basic than that, like Aqidat uh, al-Najat, by Sidi Muhammad ibn Jafar al-Kittani, which is a text that I, I, I actually did a recording of lessons that I, was, I, I had done a couple of years back, and it's, uh, it's uploaded now, on, it's available on YouTube, SoundCloud. You guys can find it there. But uh, it's uh, the Creed of Deliverance, which is just nine lessons that I uh, that I put together. And when I had students go through this before they go into college, all of a sudden, once they started especially the ones that started in science, everything started to fall into place properly. So when they were getting challenged by, or not necessarily challenged, when they were getting information that would have challenged their faith, it no longer did because they were prepared for it. It's a problem when you get blindsided. When you start taking these classes and they tell you about, let's say, um, the theory of evolution from their perspective and what they believe about it and what they think about uh, Adam and Eve and, and how they deny all of that. and they, they, they deny that Allah created them and they deny all of these things. And then they, they present you with all of these different lines of evidence that they say prove that their case is correct. 
Well, I actually broke down all of the fallacies in, in all of that thinking, all of the major ones at least, and I go through it in a basic text, and I did it in a way that wasn't too complex, and it doesn't require you to have a philosophy background. It just requires you to be an intelligent human being who got into college. Yeah. And if you had what it takes to get into college, then you understand what I'm going to talk about in these lessons. So I would definitely stress, because most of us Muslims, you know, why did we become Muslim? Well, we never became Muslim. We were born into a Muslim family, and we just kind of grew up in that, in that world. And we just, we're Muslim because we were born into a Muslim family. None of us really questioned it. And it's okay. It's fine. Nobody's asking you that you have to absolutely question these things. But if you're going to go into an environment where your faith is going to be challenged, and you have to have answers that are more rational than emotional and more rational than inheritance, then you need to understand why you're a Muslim. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not command us all to go out and, and justify our Islam. But if you're going to be in a position where you're going to have to have justifications for it, now it becomes incumbent upon you to understand why you're a Muslim. Not necessarily what you believe as a Muslim, but, but why? Why do you even accept these beliefs as a Muslim? Once you have these in place and understand the basic philosophical kind of logical fallacies that are in place today, then you'll be able to go into these universities, go through the courses, and not have a problem with your faith afterwards. Yeah, now, I mean, you've laid out that brilliantly about the the steps taken by the student from the from an early age, um, opening him up to these various uh, metaphysics and also um, taking things on with an Islamic background, uh, understanding the logic behind these things. Um, but one of the things that I found uh, of these logical fallacies when I'm at university, I studied philosophy, politics, economics, uh, and Arabic and religious mm-hmm. studies, and I can see the, the logical fallacies at play, but still what I find among some of my friends and even in my own personal experience is what is called reduction. We reduce, like the straw man fallacy basically, you reduce your opponent's argument to something that you don't really understand fully. At the end of the day, it's no longer unity that you call for. When you when you call for unity among people to, to come together and speak united, with it's actually conformity. You have to conform to my... Here's the issue. Here's the issue with all of this. Um, the one who first gets there is going to have the easier time at convincing the other side. So if you have a, uh, and the, the reason for this is it's a, it's a deep psychological issue. And the psychological issue here is your, um, you know, Imam Raghul al-Fahani. You know, a lot of people talk about Imam al-Ghazali, but they don't recognize that Imam al-Ghazali is, uh, is the fruit Absolutely. of Imam Raghul al-Fahani, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And um, Imam Raghul al-Fahani, he, he said that the four enemies of man, if you recognize your four enemies, you'll have a lot easier time figuring things out. Nafs, hawa, shaitan, and dunya. Nafs is your ego. Hawa is your kind of whims, right? And the thing with whims, once you condition somebody emotionally in a way that, they, that you present them with a rationalization that goes along with their whims, it becomes very difficult for you to come afterwards and say, actually, that rationalization doesn't work mm-hmm. because of all of these different fallacies. Because they've found something to justify their whims. Now... Again, back to this colonization issue. We as Muslims in the world today, let's face it, we're not really running the show. We're not the ones that have the ascendancy. We're not the ones on top of our games. Usually, and Ibn Khaldun talks about this, people who are conquered want to imitate the conqueror. They always look up to the conqueror because they look at the conqueror as somebody who's more powerful, more intelligent. They try to figure out what it is about the conqueror 
that got them to conquer us. So they try to imitate in a way for them to emancipate themselves. So what do we do? We look at the West, for example, and the atheistic philosophies and scientism and all that, and we look at their technology, and we look at their advancements in science, and we think, well, that's the reason. That's why we're down and out. And they must have some access to truth about realities of this world that we don't have. Now, they present us with their worldview and their metaphysics. We falsely associate. If, you're, if you have a colonized mind, you will falsely associate their ascendancy with their metaphysics and their beliefs. And so then you start to adopt them because why? You want to become them. You want to get out of this situation of being a conquered, colonized, irrational, faith-based, you know, all of these derogatory things that they try to throw, uh, throw out our way. So if you don't teach, if you don't give this, if you don't build this izda, you know, this kind of pride, mm-hmm. which as Umar al-Khattab says that we are a people that have been ennobled by Islam, and if we seek nobility in anything other than Islam, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will debase us. Yeah. If, you don't intr- if you don't instill that in the kids or in the youth before they go into university and show them that, you know what, you need to build this, I don't know, this kind of uh, nobility within you so that you can recognize that no matter what you're being presented with, you still have the truth. Even if you're down and out, it doesn't matter. You still have the truth, and this is why you have it. And you presented it in a rational way. When they go in, they'll have a bit of a, a character, a strength of character, so that when they present it with something, and you explain to them as well that, listen, you have these enemies that you have to watch out for. Your nafs, your hawa, your shaitan, your dunya, you have to watch out for these enemies. The most dangerous enemy is the one that you don't see coming and you don't even recognize as your enemy. So a lot of these don't even recognize their enemy. They don't know. So they go with their whim, but they don't know that they're going with their whim. And then they present you with all of these arguments that they think are rational, but they're rationalizations. And there's a, there's a stark difference between rationalizations and rational arguments. So you have to teach them all of this stuff before they go into college. And my recommendation, if possible, take a year after college off. They were teachers. Mm-hmm. Study your religion, figure out, and, and, and like I said, Bahá'í is great, but mm-hmm. it's not going to suffice. It's not enough. You need to study something a little bit more on the, uh, the logic and the rationale of it. Bahá'í is a didactic, you know, it's 136 lines, it's great. You get through the, like, what we believe as Muslims, and that's nice. But it doesn't explain to you why. Mm-hmm. You need something to explain to you why. So that's where the Nasafiyah comes in, the Sanasiyah, that's where the uh, Jawhara comes in, but things like that. Yeah. So they have to study these things and go through an intensive program where they sit with teachers and they have to be around teachers as well so that they can gain this. You know, there's a, there's a power to being surrounded with people that have to. So they build this connection with them, they gain that certainty to them, and they also study this stuff in a rational way and they sit with teachers that respect their intellect. You don't want teachers that basically require of you to believe what they believe without explaining themselves. Alhamdulillah, I've been surrounded with teachers and I connected with teachers that were never shy to explain when I asked, but why? Why do we go this way? Why do we believe this? What is the rationale behind that? Nobody's ever rebuked me for asking questions. Nobody's expected me to uh, to believe something without, you know, justification. Um, And the justification doesn't always, and this is the other issue that I, I need to stress out. You don't want to fall for the neo marxist type of thinking today. Because a lot of Muslims now, it's, it's, it's like an increasing trend now we see. Because of this age's um, uh, idealization of the rational, of the intellect, it's become a new idol. It's become a new sonam. 
where you start to believe that the highest ideal is anything that your mind tells you that you can rationally justify, that's what you accept. And if you can't rationally justify, then you can't accept it. In other words, you make the rational, your own intellect, the judge over everything, which is another problematic thing. And that was the whole um, um, uh, conflict between the, the Ash'aris and the Mu'tazilis early on. And the sin of the Mu'tazila was what? It was their lack of recognition that their rational intellect, the pure reason is very limited. It can only get you to a, a very limited number of conclusions. Beyond these conclusions, your, your reason is always going to be influenced by your social context, by your historical context, by intellectual and academic context that you're surrounded by. And so you can't really trust it completely. And that's why you have to resort back to the Qur'an and the Sunnah. So that's how the way of doing things, or the mental easy way of doing things, is that you combine between the two. You have the rational and you have the revelation as well. And both of them go together and they support each other. So you have to, it's a, it's a fine line to walk on, um, but they have to understand that this religion is not, as they say, blind faith. Our faith is built on reason, and at the same time, it's a recognition of the limitation of our reason and why we have to accept revelation. And even accepting revelation itself is based on reason. I mean, it's, it's this kind of inter, uh, exchange between these two um, areas that come together in a harmonious way. And, it's, and it takes about, I would say, at least a year of them studying with teachers and then pursuing their studies afterwards in college. Do you think that it is predicated upon these whims and fancies that have these ex-Muslims who claim to be rationally, you know, opposing Islam? Um, and because many times... The, the, when people go to university, Muslims, uh, the FYI, the Family and Youth Institute of America, and I think I can compare that with South Africa, um, because when I mention these statistics of um, at least uh, 40% of Muslim youth at universities have, have, have you know, drink alcohol, 56% have engaged in premarital sex. When I mentioned that to some of the, my university students, um, they were like, they were shocked. I mean, they weren't shocked. I was shocked. They were in shock. They were like, yeah, that's normal. So do you think it's yeah. because of these social ills that through that, that's not addressed properly, um, whereas it's not necessarily intellectual challenges that they face, that they somehow become so-called intellectualists and, and, and they, they, they oppose Islam and they leave Islam? Well, I, could, I don't I really have to think about it. I, you should have the Al-Habib Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam actually told us, oh, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he said, uh, that the individual, male or female, is going to be upon the path, the religion, the way of Khalid. And Khalid in Arabic literally refers to someone that you're intertwined with, you're so close with, mm-hmm. you're always out with. That's your Khalid. You're going to be upon their way. And so he warned us and he said, be very careful with who you associate with yeah. in these close proximities. And I can tell you, Alhamdulillah, I'm older now, I'm like, you know, I've got, I, I think I would have a strong personality, but I could tell you that when I'm surrounded with particular types of people, even me, after all of these years of study and pursuit of things and surrounding with you and everything, I still feel this internal desire. Things move inside of me when I associate myself with certain individuals or if, I, if I find myself somehow landed in a particular gathering, I will find myself, my, my thoughts, go in a different direction. And I recognize it because I start, you know, after years of study and, and associating with 
with shiuch, they teach you how to recognize the signs mm-hmm. of what's going on with your with your whims and when your whim is being titillated and when your shaitan is whispering to you. So I recognize and I immediately remove myself from that context. Despite the, the, the difficulty of, oh my God, you know, I'm not being social, I'm not being that. No, I'm still social, I still go around with, but I, I choose my company carefully because I know, and we know this also from uh, psychology research has established this pretty well now. The groups that you associate yourself with is going to impact how you view the world, how you view sin, how you view your behavior, and what behavior you engage in. All of that is now is pretty well established psychology research. Mm-hmm. So for the youth, for the Muslim youth, I would say you have to watch with the, watch out over who you're associating with, who your friends are, who you spend your time with. I mean, let's face it, nobody goes to the bar or nobody goes to a party, you know, these college dorm parties and such. Nobody goes there and says, oh, I'm not going to drink, I'm not going to talk to the girls, I'm not going to dance, I'm not going to do anything, I'm just going to go there and hang out with my buddies. It's uh, that you can fool you can fool everybody, but you can't fool yourself. You know yeah. exactly where mm-hmm. you're putting yourself, and you know exactly how it's going to end up, and you know why you're going there. You're exposing yourself to these forces, and at some point, you've already kind of lost the battle by going anyways. So I would say, watch out who you, who you associate with. Now, eventually, if you, if you do this often enough, and you want to be a lo- go along, the problem with it is, is the guilt, right? Yeah. So you have this guilt build up. You feel bad. You. Don't, what is the defense mechanism? Because guilt doesn't feel nice. And so what do we do when we feel guilty? We recognize that we've sinned. You do tell but you go back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And subhanAllah, all of a sudden that guilt goes away because, I mean, you have the regret that you've engaged in something, but then you, you move on and you don't have the psychological trauma. If you don't repent, you always have this internal kind of dissonance, this cognitive dissonance, this crisis of faith internally that keeps brewing and, and growing inside of you and at some point something has to give and so you end up either becoming an extremist in the sense of religious observance because you went to one extreme or you go in the other extreme of I don't want this religion because I want to live my life how I want to, how I want to live my life and it's not really you want to live your life that way you want to be associated with people that basically satisfy carnal desires, you want to just live as if there is no consequences to how you live, and that's what you want to do, you should end up justifying it by, well, I don't want this religion anymore because it's it's a detriment to my lifestyle. I mean, that's also, uh, from that, people often justify, you know, when they go into these studies of in psychology and philosophy, they justify the understanding of the Western or the, like a epistemology or metaphysics, that understanding uh, in opposition to Islam, whereas they forget that Islam itself has these, you know, mechanisms within Tasawwuf, for example, Ilm al-Khawatir, knowing where your thoughts come from, and if we can, you know, um, uh, place ourselves in, in both of these studies in order to go forth and answer these questions for ourselves that exactly exactly now uh, coming to Andalus online uh, it's your, one of your brainchild right um, this is really interesting you've started a an online uh, book club as well mm-hmm. um, besides the the blogs and the podcasts and the videos uh, which many have, many have benefited from myself included um, can you tell us why do you why you started Andalus uh, book club and, and what was the motivation behind this I mean I you've spoken about the really the motivation behind this you've really turned that into action and can you just tell the the listeners uh, about Andalus uh, book club and Andalus online well I, I before doing the book club I I, I like sharing on my social media um, pictures of books that I'm reading or passages that I've come across in my readings and 
sometimes I write book reviews and commentaries on them. And I found myself over the past uh, couple of years increasingly getting requests for, can you give me a book list? Can you give me a book list? And people just want to read these books. Now, it's, it's one thing to ask for a book list and I can just give you the book list, but it's another thing to have somebody who has background in the Islamic tradition, like, uh, you know, things that I've studied, yeah. who can interpret this information in these books, because not all of the books that I read are written by Muslims. They're written often by non-Muslims yeah. that have some very poignant things to say, that some very interesting things to say that have significance for, uh, for us as Muslims. So I wanted to have... Um, I was contemplating an idea of, well, how can I give you a book list, but that one that comes to life in a sense, where it's not so much me just giving you a static list that you just pick up and read on your own, but also have with it a commentary, maybe a discussion back and forth. And so I, it, in my locality, I was always discussing these books with people, and I thought, well, why not take that online? So I started this book club so that I can have uh, a yearly book list that can be updated every year, and it started off uh, just in October of last year, um, where it's just a list of these books that I have a uh, 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 purpose behind. I think they're significant for our understanding of our tradition as well as our understanding of ourselves in the world today. And uh, what I did, with, what I'm doing with it is um, it's uh, putting it uh, behind a, a forum so that I engage with the members every month. Uh, uh, on a weekly basis where I do commentary on passages, on chapters, uh, back and forth question and answer in the forum. And then there is a, a monthly webinar on each book that we go through. And the webinar can go up all the way up to an hour and a half sometimes, where it's um, I kind of give an overview of the book, its significance for us, and then go into a Q&A type of session so that it's more interactive. And in this way, I can reach a wider audience. It's not limited by location anymore. Um, and so now I can, alhamdulillah, I've been engaging with people from literally across the world, between Australia, the UK, South Africa, uh, Canada, and the States. Um, and so it's just a way for people to to have kind of a, a, a forum that is not necessarily limited to Islamic tradition per se. A lot of the courses that you find online is just about teaching the Islamic text. I wanted to go through something that's a little bit more uh, modernizing in a sense, where you have what what would have what would have the study of Islamic texts meant for you had you studied them and then read the, these books? That's kind of the angle that I'm coming at, uh, coming in from. So I would bring in my background in Islamic studies as well as my background in sciences and then, and philosophy, and then I would bring it to bear on the books that I've assigned in these forums. And so these videos now, after we've been recording the webinars and putting them up for people that are unable to attend when the webinar is live. Um, and uh, and they do have access to the live events when it happens, and so they can go. And we have a, this engagement on a weekly basis uh, in the book forum. Alhamdulillah, it's been quite interesting. Mostly, the interesting thing about the youth, once you give them a forum where they can engage and have a kind of a judgment-free environment, mm -hmm. where it's not full of trolls, and that's, that was the other thing that I wanted to make sure of, that we're not having an area of just like... Uh, mindless comments like you see in Facebook, but a place where people would actually go and buy the book, yeah. read it, have questions about it, come in, write something, and have somebody who has some background that they can teach and uh, they can engage with in a way where it's really, and the forum, that I, the way that I put it in, it's no holds barred. You know, it's any question is, uh, is acceptable as long as the intention behind it is I want to understand. 
Mm-hmm. Why is it this way and why is it not that way? And so that's kind of what I've been doing with the Andalus Book Club. Uh, so the Andalus Book Club uh, forum, an online forum without trolls, I see. It's um, really interesting. Um, now, many times often we can read the book, but we will adapt our understanding to the author and not really challenge it. So just yeah. in conclusion, what advice do you have for the listeners when reading books on their own? And um, um, But what advice do you have for the listeners just in reading in general, engaging things? Uh, how do you, how do they understand it? How do they challenge the authors? And, and through, th- basically through which lens do they engage these texts and, and these videos and, and these podcasts in general? Uh, be skeptical. You know, if the author is going to make an assertion or make a statement about something, just ask the, the, simple, the simplest question to ask is why. You know, why? Why do you say that? Uh, and even simpler than that is if you come across a word that seems a little bit complex or, you know, technical or whatever, just ask, what is the meaning of this word? What it, like? Because a lot of times people use complex words and big jargon and things like that to hide their lack of understanding of something. Mm-hmm. So I'm fully um, all for uh, Richard Feynman's uh, and even Albert Einstein's thing. If you can't explain something simply, and I don't mean simplistically, I mean simply, that means you don't understand it. So a lot of times these authors will make statements and assertions and things. But my question is when I read, and I don't, I don't do skim reading. I don't like skim reading. I don't like getting through things quickly. I like yeah. to just take my time with the book highlight, underline, and have a conversation with the author. So if the author is going to make a statement, I, I often, if you come through my library, many of the books that I have have dog ears and, and flaps and, <laughs> and highlights and underlinings and writing in the margin. And the writing in the margin is always me asking questions like, why is it that way? And how can you say that? Or sometimes it's uh, talking about the significance of, uh, of something with regards to our tradition, to Islam and how this could be applied in a, or how this could be understood in an Islamic way. So I would say just take your time with the book. Don't, it's better for you to read one book every two months uh, or every month that you took your time with and really grasped it and had an engaging conversation with the author back and forth where you write and highlight. Don't be afraid of highlighting and writing in your books either. People that like to have their books neat and such, I don't buy that. <laughs> Write on it, actually underline, do things, like engage with the author. The author wrote this book, then take the author seriously and be skeptical and have a conversation with the author back and forth. You will have a much deeper understanding of the subject itself, and just take that book and don't get distracted with other books, one book at a time. Go through it, and then once you're done, you'll have a much deeper understanding of the subject that author was talking about than having to uh, you know, skim through a book a week. Um, so mm-hmm. that's kind of what I would say. Absolutely. Obviously, it would help if you had the background. I mean, alhamdulillah, I've been blessed. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given me tawfiq where I've gotten uh, uh, a good background. It's not sufficient. It's never sufficient. But I've gotten a uh, good background for me to be able to engage with these books in a way brings to bear the Islamic background into it. So I'm always thinking about the things that I read from a theological aspect. From uh, you know, I'm always finding myself reflecting back on either ayat of you know verses from the Quran or a hadith of the Prophet or things that I've read or studied in the various texts that I've studied with my teachers. Yeah. So I'm always bringing that background into mind. So if you studied anything, always try to think back. Okay, well, if you studied aqidah, in our aqidah it says this, this, and that, and that's the reason for it, and these are the rational reasons for it. 
And so you read something from an author and then it's like, well, that doesn't really make sense and you engage in a, a critical way that way. Andalus Book Club, Grow Intellectually and Spiritually, joined today. The Andalus, uh, and you can find that on andalusonline.org. Uh, Mohammed Jilan has a blog, book reviews. Vignette, you Vignette can... is cool, actually. Vignette is, my, is the latest edition, uh, just a final thing. Vignette yeah. is, a, is, I never thought of it before, but my sister told me you should do this. I take, sometimes I, cr- I come across longer passages in books, uh-huh. and it's like my way of taking that passage and breaking it apart and doing a commentary on, a commentary on that passage in a written way. So that's actually one of my favorite parts of uh, AndalusOnline.org, vignettes, and I find okay. myself doing more vignettes than I do blogs. Wow. And you can find Muhammad Jilan on Facebook at Muhammad, Muhammad Jilan, M-O-H-A-M-E-D-G-H-I-L-A-N and also at Muhammad Jilan on Twitter, Canadian neuroscience PhD, student of traditional Islam and philosophy, writer, podcaster, tweets in English and Arabic, but you're currently in Australia. Yeah, I, I moved to Australia a few months back. I'm actually uh, now in a medical degree program. So, so shukran very much for joining us and uh, assalamu alaikum. Dark, I love you. Assalamu alaikum.